All right. Please join me in reading God's word. If, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. Good morning. great to be here with you. I, I really appreciate the very warm welcome I've received uh, from all of you in worship this morning. Uh, you know, appreciate all the talk about daylight savings time, although I have two kids under three, so daylight savings isn't really clear to them. So I just mean I have an extra hour in the morning of taking care of children before going to do something. But no, I am thrilled. Uh, I'm actually thrilled to, to talk and to preach through this passage in Colossians with you this morning. Um, if, like me, this is your first time here at Ironworks, let me, let me fill you in a little bit on, on, on uh, where we've been moving through Colossians. So Colossians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae. Um, and this church has let false teaching kind of steal their joy in Christianity. They've got maybe a little bored in Christianity, and they've started letting this other teaching in. And really what that teaching has done is it's led them into a deeper religiosity, you know, that's, a, that's trumped up religious practice. You know, in place of a deepening relationship and understanding of the finished work of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So what should be joy, you know, that, that Christ has through his suffering broken our, our chains of slavery. He's cleared our debt of sin. He's reconciling us with our heavenly father. That, that what should be joyful. That's being manipulated instead into sort of a new bondage of like works and, and knowledge-based religious achievement, like I'm, I'm doing better than you. It looks nothing like the gospel, the good news, that is, that, that the Son of God has come to liberate us from our sin. 
And so Robbie, Pastor Robbie has graciously left for me a guest preacher, what I think is the most exciting passage in this whole letter. He's a very gracious host. Um, you know, so we start in chapter three. Um, chapter two, Paul has been really laying out the emptiness of this religiosity. In chapter three, we get to the kind of climax of the argument, I think is like the big if-then. And it begins with this huge kind of question of what it is to really know Christ, to really experience this resurrection. Which, and that's the promise we've received, is, is that we share in this resurrection. And this is the big hanging question that Paul is asking. Do you understand what Christ has done for you? Do you know that this is true? And, and Paul knows that they've heard this. He knows that they've at least heard this before. But it, and so the, this question kind of brings me to the idea of like, how do any of us really come to truly understand something that we've learned? Um, so before I began ministry, I, I pursued a job in teaching. I wanted to be a history teacher. Um, and you know, one thing that really stuck with me from all my classes about teaching and understanding and learning is that you know, though you do pick up things you hear and things you read, the most effective learning is when what you're taking in is paired with experience. Uh, it's like experience-based learning. And a really meaningful experience can take your learning to another level because it forces you to, like when you experience something that, that shakes what you know, it forces you to kind of process through, to re-examine what you consider true, and, and to sort of work out how you live out of that new knowledge. You know, it's a hard thing to manufacture sometimes, which is why those of us who are recently or still in school can remember so many terrible group projects or special projects. It's, it's this thing that's hard to really to manufacture. But, but I bet you if you take a moment, I, you, can, you can probably think of an experience that really changed the way you thought about something. It might be big, it might be small. Maybe sort of a small example. Um, I'm, a, I'm a really big basketball fan. I really love the NBA. It didn't get that way because I read articles in Sports Illustrated or box scores. Like, that's not how I became passionate about it. I remember as a little kid going down and seeing Charles Barkley play. Or when I was older, when I was in high school, watching Allen Iverson in his prime. And you go to these games and you see how exciting and physical and athletic it is. And you're just, oh, it's so beautiful. And, and I've been a huge fan ever since. But, but maybe something that's a bigger deal than basketball it is a bigger deal than basketball, but some people maybe don't put their priorities in the right place. Um, so my oldest child is you know, coming up on age three. And leading up you know, to having, you know, was married for a while before we had kids, but leading up to it, you know, everybody's like, oh, the experience of seeing that first ultrasound. Oh, the experience of meeting your child for the first time. And I heard those things, and those things made sense to me. But I didn't, I didn't really know if that would be true of me. I'm not a super sentimental person. A little sensitive, but I'm not, you know, super touchy-feely. And so there I am kind of going to the first ultrasound, like, I mean, it'll be cool. It'll be cool. And you see just little, like, it looks like a little speck of rice blinking. And I'm like, oh, my God. And it's overcome with emotion. When I meet my son for the first time, the day that he's born, it's just this wave of love like I haven't ever experienced before. It's a world-shattering experience a world-changing experience holding your child for the first time. It doesn't get diminished with the second child either. I'm going to put this over here. I'm all over the place. <laughs> it's just, it was just as, like when I met my daughter Mina this year, it was just as overwhelming. 
And as you process through that experience, it changes you as a person. And, and that's really what Paul is leading us through here. He's leading us through, have you experienced the power of being raised with Christ? Because if you have, that experience is going to change you. That experience is going to be enough. So let's, I, I, let's read through that, that first paragraph again. If then, or, or you can even read that, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden or your life is secure with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the issue we have with religiosity, you know, with, with this false teaching that's happened in Colossae, and really, frankly, you don't have to look hard to see it everywhere around us today. Um, frankly, anywhere religion has existed ever. You know, is that when you're, when you're engaging in that sort of religion, the, the beginning point is skewed. It's a transactional idea. If I do something, I get something from God. I mean, it's a very basic feeling that a lot of people have towards religion. I behave well, I go somewhere good, I get something good. But that's not the beginning point for Paul. What is the starting point of faith in Jesus? What has been done for and to us? So if you're new to exploring this faith, um, I really want you to hear this because it's not always communicated well, kind of publicly. Jesus is who matters in our faith, not our acts of devotion, the things we sacrifice, even how many people we baptize or bring into church, anything else. Those acts only matter in light of what's already been accomplished by Jesus. Jesus is what gives meaning to all those actions, not our own effort or will or those things. So Paul begins here because like any good teaching, the truth becomes real when we experience something that jars us out of what we once believed. Like, I can argue with someone till I'm blue in the face that it matters that people are poor and starving. If they have never seen, experienced, witnessed real poverty, seen a child who can't eat that day because they don't have enough money to afford food, their parents can't afford food, it will never feel as urgent to that person as someone who has witnessed it. That's why these commercials always flash these images at us. They're, they're trying to make you experience this thing that jars you, that unsettles you. And so Paul says, this question is good for us to ask. Have you experienced the resurrection? Have you come to understand that everything in this life is going to pass away and you don't have the ability to earn a single extra day for yourself? Do you believe that Jesus in his perfect life, his suffering and his death has paid the cost of all your failures, all of your shame, all the evil you've put out into the world? Did Jesus defeat death and really physically come back to the dead from the dead like he promised he would? That's a big part of it. He said, I'm going to do this and he did it. Have you experienced that joy that comes from being welcomed into new life with Jesus? A life free from the slavery to selfishness. You know, slavery to these things that we think we want but just really take advantage of us from the shame of our failures. If the answer to that, any of those, all of those questions is yes, 
you've just described the most radical life-changing experience that should jar you from normal day-to-day life. And what Paul does, and what Paul invites us to do first and foremost, before we get into any of the things we're supposed to do with this, is reflect on this. To set our sights on, to seek, to think on, to put our minds on, to really spend the, the, some time with the fact that our real, real life, we have a tendency to say real life to mean day-to-day life when Paul is saying our real life is actually secure with Jesus in heaven where he's sitting on the throne. And you know what that huge glorious picture of Jesus in heaven? We get to share in that. We don't come groveling up to it. We share as heirs, co-heirs into that. I think, could we just actually take a moment and reflect on that? That though all this work has been done for us, that we couldn't do anything for ourselves, that Jesus did all the work, we get welcomed in to that glory, to that future, to that eternity, that hope, forever as co-heirs with him? Can we just take like a few seconds with that? In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes this sort of metaphorical journey through hell and heaven. And I first read this book years and years and years ago. I think I was in high school. And the imagery has always stuck with me of hell as this place where, you know, you can make up anything, you can make it all exist, but it, it has no substance. When it comes to rain, the houses you've imagined, just the rain goes right through. But as this traveler moves up into heaven, it's so real, so the experience, so visceral that it's realer than he is. It hurts to walk on the grass because he's never experienced grass this real. He is less real than heaven. We need to spend time reflecting, time in heaven to remember what Christ has done for us. We need to spend some time in that space unless we get that backwards because I think we often get that backwards. Heaven seems so far off and kind of ephemeral and not really real and this seems like what's really in front of us. This is what I can touch and grab. But if heaven is real for us, if heaven is real for us, it won't just be this place we're looking forward to. It'll start to burst out of us in this life. It will start to yearly, monthly, hourly, each moment. If we're, if we're spending our time there, it will just shout out of us. I think that brings us to the next section of Paul's encouragement. And I don't see this as sort of like a, an angry list of do's and don'ts. I see things as encouragement. And he says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Now you just put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its old practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. When we spend time reflecting on Christ, what changes on us? What matters to us? 
You know, at the beginning, I mentioned the powerful experience of having children, the powerful experience of meeting my kids. I love being a dad. I really do. But part of that experience changed what I enjoy, what I like to do. You know, I used to love playing golf with my brother, like just going out and playing around to golf. It takes up most of your day off, if you're being honest. You can claim, you can, I could claim to my wife that it was only like four hours, but we all knew it was like the whole day. But it was fun. It was beautiful, you know, spending time with friends walking out there. Well, now that I have, I have children that I want to spend my days off with, that I want to see grow up, that I want to experience, all that time spent out there doing something that I like and is fun is just not as enjoyable to me, not as satisfying to me as the day with my kids. And that's probably pretty hard to understand because my children are wild animals I let live in the house. My daughter is a bit barfy. Like, these things don't... Sorry, let that settle for a second. Um, like, you know, this looks insane to somebody who doesn't, you know, who loves golf and doesn't have kids. But it makes perfect sense to me. My joy is found somewhere else now. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's helping us to process through. It's like, okay, we've had this experience. You reflect on it. What do you... Just like learning. You know, how do we process through what I've experienced? We need to ask ourselves some questions. Like, why do we care about sex and money so much? Why do we get angry? You know, why do we have these pet peeves that we rage about? Why are we willing to throw people under the bus, slander people, lie to people? You know, these things aren't foreign to us. You see them every day. We get caught up in these things. You know, and in a world where all that really matters is what you can get for yourself. I mean, a lot of these things actually seem pretty reasonable. Like, if you think, this is all I've got, I need to squeeze every last ounce of joy and pleasure out of the days I have. I mean, greed and lust and all these things start to just be a means to that end. But what good are these things to somebody who has forever secured to them? You know, what good are fleeting, dying pleasures to somebody who has tasted a bit of eternity? You know, I even think, I love that Paul even throws like obscene talk, like dirty language in here. Like he tosses this, and we see this like big list of like idolatry and like dirty language, get that out of there too. But no, but honestly, think about like, and I really tend to think about this as like, you know, I guess the, the news cycle version of this is locker room talk. But like this, this talk about is very exploitative. Like even the way we talk about people, are we talking about people in a way that's encouraging? Or are we talking about people that just like, uses talking about them as a means to get ahead or to glorify ourselves or, or to lift ourselves up. It's kind of crass objectification of other people. And once you're kind of free from, from this way of thinking, doesn't that talk seem so small? It kind of betrays kind of empty, weak desires to be powerful over other people, to put down others, to take from them, to control them. I mean, that's got to come from a place of insecurity, and a place of just like these, these petty desires. And we don't have any reason to live like this anymore. I'm going to go back to the C.S. Lewis quote well again because, well, I am. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is a wonderful quote from him. You've probably heard before if, if you've grown up in the church. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with 
drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul's putting this in line like, put this stuff to death because it's a dead way of thinking. It's a thinking that says, this is the best I can get, so I'm going to get all I can of it. It's a way of thinking that assumes there's nothing better. But Paul's saying, you know that there is. You know that there's something better, not just something different, not just something that's like better. This is, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, like, do you believe that the good news is really good? That Jesus' death and resurrection is really good for you? That this stuff that you're leaving and moving on to is better? Everything we, we value and we, our priorities, they have to be filtered through the person of Jesus. Is this better? So if I'm to live out my own promised resurrection, to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, because remember, I think part of our problem, part of our boredom with Christianity, like the church in Colossae, is that we get so caught up in just this one word, salvation. You know, we're just like, okay, Jesus saved me. And it's, like a, and it's like, our faith is like a lifeboat. We're just escaping. But Jesus promised so much more. Salvation was welcome into what he was always preaching, which is the kingdom of God. Salvation is just a part of this. He's saying that this state of affairs we live in, the brokenness and injustice that we see every day, it has an expiration date. You even see this in the passage, like God is coming in anger to deal with this brokenness. But God is coming, and in fact, the kingdom of God is already broken in. As the church, as, as followers of Jesus, we are a part of that, that first movement of God's kingdom. We're not just saved. We're not just rescued. We're freed from bondage of sin to be a part of something. He didn't just kind of set us on our way and say, like, hey, figure this out till, you know, you, you punch out. No. We are saved to be part of something bigger. And so our old identities, Paul lists all these things, nationalities, you know, things like that, you know, statuses. All those things fall below, fall beneath, are subject to our new status as citizens of heaven as co-heirs with Christ. And so what's that look like? We look at this last list of things, and I'll just, I'll just summarize this list, and we're looking at these, you know, God is telling us um, that we're chosen, that we're holy, beloved, you know, and then we should put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, that we should be forgiving, that we should let peace rule in our hearts, that love should be our chief, what we should be known chiefly for, because it binds us all together. That the word of Christ should be dwelling in us richly. We should be singing. We should be so full of joy that we're singing, so thankful that we can't help but rejoice in God. Paul has brought to the forefront our new reality, our new experience as resurrected in Christ. And he wants us to reflect on that and, he's, and he wants us to process through what doesn't have meaning to us anymore. And now he's encouraging us in this last chunk of the text, to really experiment 
with living out of your resurrection? Like, what would it look like if you lived like this was true? You know, I remember during my, my senior year of high school, I got into Penn State in the first week of October. That left a lot of my senior year of high school without a lot of particular meaning to it. <laughs> that changed how I operated as a student in, in that high school. But it also allowed me to pursue things that I really wanted to do. Take joy. You know, the, the classes that still had meaning going on, I, I paid attention to those. BC Calculus, that got quickly dropped. Um, the reality that, that that thing I'd been working for, that hope that I'd had to go to, to college had come true, changed the way I lived in the present. I pursued the things that were still valuable to me, and the things that weren't valuable to me really instantaneously ceased to have meaning. And as we look at these, they're going to read to us differently depending on how you experience this resurrection, how deeply you experience this resurrection. Um, I think it's easy to look at this list of you know, tender-hearted mercy, compassion, kindness, and say, like, you know what? Yes, the world does need more of this. I need to be treated this way by other people. I can look around this room and think of people who need to treat me this way. <laughs> but, but Paul's asking, does this look good for you? Because if, if we're living out of the resurrection, this list of traits looks good for, should look good for how we want to treat others. Does making allowance for other people's faults and forgiveness towards you know, the offensive sound like a path to joy to you? Do you want to be more bound to people in love? Do you want less independence? Do you want to be kind of more communal love-based responsibility? Our reaction to that list, um, it really tells us about us. And it tells us about what, how deeply and, and truly we believe this resurrected truth. You know, it's good sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we get caught up in, in being ashamed or guilty or feeling those feelings. That's not what Paul is trying to do here, but it is a heart check. It is a little check. Like, does that list look like I want to do this with the people who are truly hard in my life, the people who are truly difficult in my life? And if the answer is like pushing back on us, no, you know, it's good for us to reflect. You know, Jesus, Jesus tells us wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. He says this in Luke 12, verse 34. Your heart is very powerful over your head. What you really want, you'll be able to rationalize. You know, you want something bad enough, you'll be able, like, you really want that Ford Mustang, you'll be able to convince yourself that you can afford it, you know, eventually, if you get there. And so if our hearts aren't, aren't, aren't there, aren't with Christ, aren't resurrected, if we're not moving towards that place, then, then this stuff is not going to seem rational or reasonable or any of those things. I want us to see this for what it is. I want to make sure that we've not missed the point. You know, he's not trying to say, I'm getting rid of the old rules and here are new rules. That's never been true. It's never been true that God is just handing down a list of rules to mindlessly obey or to obey so that, you know, you get God's favor. 
Even if you look back to the Ten Commandments, either play it, they're listed in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. They both start with this, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. What is the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Not do this so that I'll love you, do this and you'll get something. I am the Lord your God. I have rescued you. I have shown you that I am good and care about what is good for you. This, these things that I'm about to list for you are good Why should you do them? You know that I am good and good to you. Take me at my word that this is also good. It begins with the idea, our our life in Christ begins with the idea, not that God might do something good for us, not that God is powerful enough to do something good for us, but that God has done something good for us, that And what he's done is better than anything we could ever have done for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from death. You know, over and over again, as as people of God throughout history, we should have trusted God out of joy and trust. But we've twisted that relationship to be transactional. And, And by that, we're trying to control God. We're trying to control God with our behavior. We think that we can manipulate his favor. And that's where this false, ugly religion comes from. It comes from a misunderstanding about who God is. We, you know, we, we treasure these really shallow, earthly things, and we think we can manipulate this powerful God to give them for, to us. And we hope that he's as selfish as we are, so that if we do these things he wants, he'll give us what we want. And it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be this way. Look at this list of attributes, of peacefulness, of thankfulness, of meekness, humility, love, it looks like Jesus. Paul isn't setting us this unknowable standard. He's like, look at Jesus, the one you're supposed to trust. Do you want to be like him? Do you want to look like Jesus? Like, that's the question we need to ask ourselves a lot. If, if, if Christianity is new to you, if you've been doing this a long time, Either way, the question always remains, do I want to be more like Jesus? Because that's the promise. The promise has always been in your resurrection, in in having, in being a co-heir with Jesus, you are going to be made more like Christ. And then it begins now. It's not some far off thing. It's not this like lottery ticket that will eventually hit and and I'm like Jesus. It's the process of sanctification, of being made more like him, of, of a re- this, this reflection, this learning, this change is daily making us more like Christ. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of worshiping a God who has already done the work. We know what the promise is. We know that he can keep his promise. And the, the question we are we ask is like, does that promise seem good? We're being encouraged to practice resurrection daily dude, because we are resurrected in him. If you say, yes, this, this is what I want, then our lives should depend on that resurrection daily because they do depend on that resurrection daily. We need this message, this letter. We need it every, I, I need this every day. I am so quickly distracted. I am, I see things that just like, I'd just be a little bit happier 
you know, if I just had a little bit more and I wasn't worried about the bills, you know, I'd just be... I get caught up in this stuff. We all do. Paul's encouraging us. We need to spend that time each day meditating on how amazing God is, how good His promises are, how infinite is His majesty, and yet how tender he loves us this huge infinite amazing God loves us so personally and tenderly and sometimes we chase this experience you see people like really chase these like really rich spiritual experiences with God like they're so hard to find like God is hiding but he is present with us just stop and think about what it means that the God who created the and ordered the entire universe loves you so much that he willingly and knowingly died for you. Not like you slipped in, like he died for some other people, and you, ah, there's a loophole, and I gotta let him in. No, he died for us, and welcomes us as family. Co-heirs. That means he's sharing everything with us. He really didn't need to do that. We say that about gifts all the time, but this one, really, he really didn't need to do. It's amazing. But if we spend real time with that, How does that not change us? If we spend real time with that thought where we really live in that, how does that not change us? How can it not? Why would we want to live out of the same old, same old when that is offered to you? How can the things that are dying and passing away compare to that? How can the lust, the greed, exploiting other people matter to us the same way when our eternal inheritance is waiting for us to take up today? Look, really, we should, we should desire to be merciful, kind, humble, gentle, peaceful, loving, filled with the knowledge of Christ, not because they'll earn us something or they'll get us something, because those things are awesome, because those things are like Jesus, and nothing could be more awesome than things that are like Jesus, and that should be the desire of our heart, because what else can stand up to a Savior who loves us that deeply, that personally, and has promised us more than we could ever dare hope to ask. Nothing stands up to that. Let's pray.